everyone. I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This episode, I am chatting to Rebecca, but we call her Bex, Boruki. So Bex is a mother of five. Yes, five. She is also a meditation and yoga guide and doula. Her first book called You Have Four Minutes to Change Your Life came out with Hay House a couple of years ago. And her new book, which is just out, called Managing the Motherload, a guide to create more ease, space and grace in motherhood. Sounds good, doesn't it? That's just come out. So that's what we really chat about on this conversation. So Bex and I have a really wide-ranging conversation talking about everything from vulnerability to perfectionism to meditation. To sit with yourself in the moment and say, even though things are not perfect now, even though things are not the way I want them to be, I'm holding space for wisdom, how to build up our intuition and of course how to create space and ease in motherhood and some of her tips around how she's healed people pleasing which I know is something that a lot of us struggle with we talk about it a lot together on Instagram and how to let go of the opinions of others I found really really helpful and practical I would offer that a lot of times when we find struggle in managing things it's because it really doesn't belong to us. Bex was brilliant to chat to. She is really deep and spiritual and you will get that quite quickly from her, but she also is really practical and has a great sense of humour and is very realistic. So I hope you really enjoy listening to her and take a lot from the episode. Also, I have managed to convince Hay House to give us five copies of her book, Managing the Motherload, to give away. So if after listening to the episode, you're desperate to get your hands on the book, and I can verify I've read it page by page and it is fantastic, then head over to Instagram, motherkind underscore Zoe, and you can enter to win one of the five copies. That is, of course, if you're listening to this podcast relatively close to the release date, which is the 19th of September. If you're listening to it in a year's time, then the books have probably gone. Sorry about that. But this is something that I'm asking everyone that comes on the podcast that has a book. I am requesting from the publisher for a set of copies to give away. 
because I think these books are so profound and important, but they cost money and not all of us can just buy these books that we want to, but the publishers often want to give them away. So I hope you're excited about this. I'm going to hopefully be doing every episode, be giving away at least five copies of the interviewee's book. If you enjoyed this episode, as usual, please do pop onto iTunes, rate, review and share and join the conversation and enter the competition at motherkind underscore Zoe on Instagram. Here it is. So Rebecca, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting to you this afternoon. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I read your book over the weekend, Managing the Motherload, and I absolutely loved it. So how did you come to write this book? I think you said that you felt quite resistant to start with. Can you tell us a bit about how you came to write it and your background? Well, first, I'm a mother of five. So that's why I was asked to write the book. I have five children that range in age from 21 all the way down to almost five, who is starting kindergarten this year, two girls and three boys. And I'm a meditation guide. So Managing the Motherload is actually my second book. It came by request of my publisher after they rejected the proposal that I sent them. So (laughs) it started off as not so great of a situation. I had sent them a proposal that was something that I was really attached to and that I thought I really needed to write about. It was a process for healing. It was based on my coaching method. And they came back saying that that was not the book that they necessarily wanted to publish at the time, but they saw in my proposal something that I was doing at the time where I was giving this talk to mothers. It was something I had presented to a local mothers group, and I called it Managing the Motherload. And it was basically this 20-minute talk that I had prepared and I was offering to my audience. And they said that they thought that looked interesting, and can I expand on that in a book about parenting? At the time, it was a difficult request because literally at that moment, I was suffering a miscarriage, a pregnancy loss. That was my seventh pregnancy and my second loss of a pregnancy. And also at that same time, I was in the midst of an estrangement from my second to oldest child, my oldest son. And it was something that I didn't feel at all qualified to do, talk about parenting, because I felt very much a failure at parenting because of the estrangement. And I was in a lot of emotional turmoil because of the miscarriage. So I sat with it for a minute and I talked to my agent and I got back to the publisher and I said, yes, I'll write a book mostly because I'm the main breadwinner in the family. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll write the book. I have these kids to support, but I'm not going to write about parenting. I want to write a book, my experience with motherhood and how it has shaped my own healing journey, healing from anxiety and depression, and also healing from the broken relationships I had with my own parents. And also talk about how I have pursued my dreams and my career in the context of mothering, and how being a mother has influenced all of that. So I asked them if I could write that book instead, and they liked the idea. So I set on the path of doing that. Managing the mother load, and I say it in the first lines of the book is absolutely not a parenting book. I'm not giving advice on how to get your kids to go to sleep at night or how to make your teenager clean their room. It's more about my relationship with myself as a mother 
and how that has healed relationships with my parents and my children. And even in my romantic relationship with my husband, how it really has allowed me to be a more compassionate, thoughtful, and even driven person, ambitious person. So I bring the reader through all of that. And hopefully some of the things I've done inspire the reader to do the same in her own life. I love that you wrote this book from such a place of imperfection, because I Mm -hmm. think that's what we can sometimes suffer with, isn't it? Is that I know I can, is that we have to have things lined up. All our ducks have to be in a row in order for us to be of service or to achieve these amazing things. And I love that you share that so honestly and openly in the book that actually you're in a really tricky time when you wrote this. But what I could tell from reading it is that I really felt your vulnerability. And I wonder if being in that tricky time enabled you to open your heart more. It did because with all of my work, and of course your listeners don't know this, but I talk about it a lot on my platform my work started as a way for me to just reach out and get help for myself, which I think a lot of quote unquote mommy bloggers or other bloggers have done. It's just sharing your story and people resonate with it. So I learned very early on that the more honest I was and vulnerable in a way that was constructive, it wasn't just woe is me. It was just I'm sharing this experience so that maybe I can find someone to relate to. And also you could see that someone is also being affected by whatever in the same way. So I learned that that was the fastest way to actually find healing and resolve and community. Writing the book was difficult because it was a very blatant statement of saying, yes, I'm messing up. (laughs) But I felt like I was messing up, but looking back, I see that I wasn't. It's another phase of motherhood that you go through as your children grow and become their own people. Mm. It was very hard for me to admit in some ways that I wasn't perfect because it wasn't about my weight. It wasn't about me failing at a business. It was about the biggest, most personal, most important parts of my life. In admitting that I wasn't a fantastic, perfect parent, I was admitting to myself that maybe I had caused some harm in my children's lives. So it was therapeutic. It was heart-wrenching. It was fun in some parts where I got to talk about the more joyful parts of my life and share that for the first time with my audience and a new audience. Yeah, it was a pretty big personal process for me. There's loads I want to ask you about and I will get onto it, but I just think that's a really powerful point around you having to accept that you may have caused your children some harm and I actually think it's inevitable (laughs) that Mm -hmm. we will cause our children some harm and actually trying to be perfect and avoiding that harm actually causes more in my experience with my own mother because there'll be people listening really relating to that this deep fear that we have that we're somehow going to mess our children up or get it wrong how did you square that circle for yourself I talk a lot about it in the book in the context of my relationship with my mother And I didn't see this at first, but I did realize very quickly when other people started to see what was happening, what was unfolding, how it was being mirrored in my relationship with my son. So I had this very tumultuous relationship with my mother growing up. We had periods of estrangement. We'd go back and forth. And in fact, right before she passed in 2013, we hadn't been speaking for three months. So it was at the hospital that we reunited and I was lucky to be able to say goodbye and have a little bit of resolve before I had to let her go. 
But my younger sister, when I was telling her about what was going on with my son, she looked at me incredulously and said, don't you see that you are mom and he is you at that age? Immediately, a light bulb went off and I was like, oh my gosh, it's almost identical. The situation, the words, the way we fought, the estrangement, all of it was so similar. And in that moment, I was able for the first time to step into his shoes and really see the situation from his perspective. And I knew exactly what he needed. And it was to be heard and to be trusted because the whole time I was coming down with an iron fist and being very stubborn in my position and telling him what he needed to do and what I believed was the right thing for him to do to have success or anything in his life. That was the exact opposite of what was required in the situation. So what happened there was that I had to see that when my mother thought I was doing wrong, I really just needed her to have my back and to support me. And I turned out okay anyway. Like my life is really good right now and I have made really good decisions and I turned out to be a successful, happy person with good relationships. And even though I don't love the path that my son is on right now, I needed to hold space for that to happen for him too, instead of making these negative predictions and saying that everything was going to be wrong if he did what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So I had to surrender, which is a big theme in the book. I had to say, his path can work for him too. And if I keep interfering, he might not be able to learn the lessons that he needs to learn. So I had to step back and just be that soft place for him to land if he needed me. And as soon as I did that, our relationship started to improve. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's perfect even now, years later. You know, we, we have some distance between us, but we get together for lunch and he comes over and we do things together as a family and we're taking him on vacation in January. So it's improving. And even if this is as good as it gets, I think that it's really healthy because we're being really honest with each other. So yeah, that was the big full circle moment for me. Yeah, it's powerful. And I think I see that a lot in my own parenting is the moment I let fear get in the way, I become controlling. It's like a direct line to me. The moment I get fearful, is she okay? You know, and then I start noticing that I just start controlling her behavior because it takes so much awareness to do what you did, which is just to take our hands off and let our children, as you say, and you talk about a lot in the book, is letting them go. And can you talk about when you let go of your first image of the perfect family with your first marriage? Because I thought that was really poignant and powerful. And I know a lot of my listeners are going through similar things right now. So could you share a bit about that too? The marriage was never good, but I was still in that place of really wanting to have the perfect appearance. It was so important for me to not fail at something. And I was sticking it out in spite of all of the gut feelings, in spite of all of my intuition to just stop, to just, you know, call it a day and move on. And there was one conversation with my mother. And I talk about this very early on in the book because it sets the stage for the entire theme of the book, where she told me that just like in nature where there's seasons, there's seasons in our life. And this isn't a new concept, but it really hit home for me in that moment. And she told me that I needed to understand that this was just a phase that I was in. It wasn't right or wrong. It's just something that happens. And as soon as I surrender to the rightness or the perfection of the imperfection, 
as being just as it should be, that I'll be able to move on and make better decisions. I didn't in that moment end my marriage. We ended up having another child and going for several more years. But I held that idea in the back of my head that if this ends, it doesn't mean that everything ends. There will be another stage, another phase after this. And it proved true. I ended that marriage with three small children. It was a really hard time being a single mom of those three. But in that time, I understood too that that was only a phase and I needed to hold space for other parts of my life where things could be better or different. Now I'm in another relationship. We've been married for almost 11 years together for 13 years. We have two more children together. And it's really a beautiful, imperfect life. And I'm excited to be in this phase and I'm honoring it for what it is. And who knows what will come? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm open to everything. (laughs) If someone's listening and they have that gut feeling that they're in the wrong marriage, but the fear is all consuming, what would you say to them? You know, I never tell anyone what to do in terms of you should leave or you should stay and work it out because I think that that's really ineffective and it can be harmful. So I would say to understand, and this is where meditation comes in for me, to connect with myself, to say, I see you. I see that you're a thinking, feeling person who deserves to be heard. I love you. To sit with yourself in the moment and say, even though things are not perfect now, even though things are not the way I want them to be, I'm holding space for wisdom and then also to gain a lot of support. Be honest and open with people you can trust. So not everyone is entitled to your story, but bring in that community of people who love you and want the best for you and who will also hold you accountable and challenge you that don't just tell you what you want to hear, but it will really, really honor where you are and give you good guidance. And I think it starts with pulling in people that you really admire and that you think are really doing good things in their lives. Mm. So, you know, all of my girlfriends, I respect so much. I love and respect so much. And I'm probably in 10 different group text messages with women at all times and some men, some men too, where it's like every single decision I make, not that I don't honor my own wisdom, but I love running it by these other people just for them to either, you know, cheer me on or to present another option for me. But none of my friends would say, like, if I bring them a problem about my husband, none of them would say, you should leave him or, you know, he's terrible, like forget him. Nobody says that. They ask me how I feel and what I think would be in my best interest. And they just honor my wisdom too. It's really beautiful. So community is everything and also connecting with yourself Hmm. and giving yourself permission to feel terrible and also permission to feel better eventually. And you talk about connecting with intuition and that we've lost that in so many ways. How do you do that through your different practices? I offer a practice in the book that I really love and has worked for me. So I would challenge or invite the people listening to see if it works for them. I go into meditation. I love visualization. I see everything in pictures. I work out concepts in pictures. And there was one particular meditation where I pictured my intuition because I was having a really hard time trusting myself. I didn't know if the advice I was giving myself was right. So What I did was I pictured my intuition as a little girl and as someone who was still in the space of not having inhibitions, 
in the space of not being told what to do because little kids are so great that way. Like they try things, they stand up, they fall down, they stand up again. Like little kids walking is inevitable, right? They're going to walk. No one would tell a little kid, you should just stop trying. You've fallen 10 times. Like give it up. Like no one does that. And we hold space for that inevitability of them being successful in walking. So I pictured my intuition as a little kid, as a little girl whose wisdom was inevitable if she was just encouraged. So I invite people to picture their intuition as a child in a classroom, boy, girl, however you identify, and the teacher asking them a question and them raising their hand and giving the most outlandish, wacky answer. The teacher responding with ridicule, maybe laughing and saying, oh my gosh, no, that's so wrong. And then asking what would that do to that little person if they were not supported? They would be less likely to raise their hand again. They might be embarrassed, humiliated. They might become a poor student because they never want to try because they think that they're so wrong. And then trying a new narrative and really sitting with this in meditation and imagining that little person raising their hand. And instead of ridicule, the teacher says, hmm, that's so interesting. Tell me how you came up with that. Like, tell me more. That's fascinating. I've never thought about it that way. So if we can do that with our intuition, when things come up, instead of self-judgment, say, why is this coming up? Getting curious instead of judgmental, investigating it more. If we could do that, I believe, and I have witnessed my intuition becoming stronger, coming to me more quickly, loudly, So that now when I tap into, you know, that gut feeling and I say, you know, what's the answer here? What should I do? The answer comes so cleanly and almost instantly. And because I trust it, it's just so easy to know what to do. Mm, That's such a good way of looking at it, that every time we push down or ignore our intuition, we're Mm -hmm. we're weakening it, which is what you're saying. And I hear a lot of this, or, you know, it's like a bit of an Instagram thing, isn't it? Or trust your intuition. (laughs) But the truth is, is that it takes huge amount of baby steps to get to that point where you can trust your intuition, which is why I love your first step, which is just get curious around what might be coming up and then in time, learn to trust it and act on it. I think that's really, really great advice. I wanted to talk about sleep <laughs> because it's something that you, <laughs> you mentioned that? in the book and it's definitely linked to intuition. I know that when I'm exhausted, I cannot access any inner wisdom. All I can access is like this critic raging at me because I'm tired. So you have five children and yet you say in the book, you prioritize sleep. I do. How? Well, you know, I also honor the phases that I'm in with sleep. So the past month I've been launching my second book for adults. I'm currently launching my first children's book. So I have been getting very little sleep. I haven't been taking care of myself in that regard, but I also understand that this is a time where it's going to be chaotic. You know, the hustle is very real and I have to participate in these things. And I know that at the end of it, I'm going to reprioritize sleep. But usually, because I manage my anxiety every single day, I don't know if I'll ever be free of being an anxious person. So I'm really diligent about routine. And I don't mention this in the book, but it's something that I do a lot and lately too. I've combined my self-care with taking care of my children. So at night when the children go to bed, instead of laying down with them and reading them a children's book, I've been reading from my own book. And my four and a half year old really loves this. 
So right now we're reading Braiding Sweetgrass, which is this gorgeous book by an American indigenous woman. And I read an essay a night. So I'm reading for maybe 20, 30 minutes a night. That happens at 8.30. And I'm in bed with my little one. And it's a way for me to wind down and for her to wind down at the same time. Sometimes I fall asleep with her. And that's fantastic. I've cared for myself and I go to bed. Sometimes I work from bed a little bit or I might go back downstairs for a little while. But I hate to use the word strict, but that's exactly what it is. I've set really clear boundaries around what I need to do in a day. And it's actually caused me to be much more efficient. I have certain times that the electronics go off for the entire family at 7 p.m. I have times that I work in terms of like doing interviews like this. They're always during the day when the kids will be at school or otherwise occupied with their own play. And I found that when I have clear deadlines to say, this is when this needs to be done, or I schedule things on my calendar in a way that I only put so many things on the day that I can handle. And I talk about this process in the book too. It allows me to get things done when they need to get done and not trail off. So like maybe you are working on a project or laundry or whatever. And instead of just fitting it in wherever I can and just going until exhaustion, I say, no, this is the day that I do laundry. This is the time that I allow for it. And that's it. And what gets done, gets done. And what doesn't usually wasn't that important in the first place because you start to prioritize what needs to happen instead of what you think should happen. And I've done this with five kids and I have a business and I work from home and I travel and all my laundry is always done. So it's not a fairy tale. You know, I, I actually have worked this out in my life over the 21 years. But that does require letting go of a lot of things that are just not mine to manage. They just don't belong to me. Like what? The kids remembering things for school past a certain age. If you leave it home, I'm not running it to you. That is your responsibility. There's a lot of things that I used to take on and feel guilty if I didn't that really aren't mine. And they were inhibiting the ability for other people in my family to take responsibility for themselves. So after the kids get into their own routine, for instance, my eight-year-old son, if he forgets his homework at home and we've established a routine and a little checklist, that's on him. He needs to learn that that's not mom and dad's responsibility. There's a little grace built into that. You know, we might take it for the first two times of school to say like, we're doing you this favor, but not again. The teenager who says, oh, I forgot that tomorrow this money is due for a trip, you know, and, and I really need it. You know, we don't take the trip away from him, but then he has to work that off because if we have to come up with money that wasn't budgeted, then he might have to replace it. So there's these ways that I teach responsibility and my husband does it along with me. But it's really about setting a boundary around what I need to manage. And I would offer that a lot of the times when we find struggle in managing things, it's because it really doesn't belong to us. Yep. Because the things that truly belong to us will work out. I shared the other day on Instagram about how many women I speak to that are mothering their partners too. You know, they might have these kids and then they're also basically managing the husband's lives and wondering why you know, we feel burnt out and exhausted. So I think it's such an important point in every area of our lives, isn't it? These boundaries, as you say. And I have witnessed anecdotally with my clients, with my friends, when we do that to our partners, whether they're men, women, whomever, when we do that with our partners, it's insulting. It's infantilizing them and it's turning them into our children. And if we gave them the freedom 
to take care of themselves and trusted that they knew how to do it. Maybe it's not our way, but it gets it done. Then it empowers them. It's a sign of respect and it strengthens the relationship. So I had so many fights with my husband about the way he loads the dishwasher. I asked him the other day, I wonder how many marriages have broken up over things like this, like the dishwasher. And because I was so convinced that I knew the most effective way to do it. And finally, you know, him sticking up for himself and it took a lot of time of us learning how to communicate. And I have that method in there too, this beautiful four-step conversation method for him to say, you can take over the dishwasher completely and just do it the way you want it, or you let me do it the way I do it. And that's how it's going to be. And he does it the way he does it. I look at it. It makes me a little bit crazy, but the dishes get clean and I just deal with it. So there's surrender in that too. And since I've trusted him in a lot of different areas and how he runs his business, all kinds of things, I've seen him flourish. He doesn't have me hanging over him constantly. Well, I always think about through my actions, what is my message? And, you know, I feel like when we do something for someone, whether it's an eight-year-old or a 48-year-old, that they are capable of doing themselves, I think the subconscious message is, I don't trust that you can do this. And that's really disempowering. So I'm the same, like Jessie, my little girl, she's nearly four, but there's certain things that she has to do now. And that's a reaction against my own childhood where, you know, I really was totally enabled and managed up until 21, 22. And it made me very under-responsible. And I've had to really work on that. So I'm trying to do it differently. And just on the dishwasher, it's so funny. We have exactly the same, exactly the same. <laughs> And my husband said to me, I said, fine, I am not going to change. This is not an issue for me. This is your issue. And do you know what he said? Okay. I said, do you accept it or you do something about it? He said, I cannot accept it. And I said, well, I'm not changing. It doesn't bother me. It's not my thing. So now every night he reorganizes it. (laughs) Every night he spends 10 minutes organizing it into, you know, height order or whatever the hell he does. And it looks totally different when I come down to unload it in the morning, which I just think is hilarious. But I said to him, that's not my thing to do. It doesn't bother me. So I was more like your husband, but I think it's absolutely, as you say, these are small things, but they're big things. Yeah. And also it's really important to acknowledge why you feel that way about the thing. For me, the dishwasher has nothing to do with the rightness or wrongness of how to organize the dishes. It stems from my anxiety and needing things to be perfect. So when I explain to my family, I have to be very honest and say, this is my dysfunction a little bit coming through and it has nothing to do with you. It's a way that I manage my anxiety. So when I need things a certain way, they need to also know that it's not them being wrong. It's me just needing a certain thing. It's medicine for me, really. So when I express that realness about what's happening within me, then they can feel a little bit better. (laughs) So they're like, okay, mom just needs this to feel good. And it's so, and then they're more compassionate too, and less Mm, resentful. mm. And I'm so interested because you say this at the start of the book, and I'm going to say it because I love it so much. You say, there is enough time to achieve everything your heart desires and still meet the needs of your family. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we're, we're on this topic now, aren't we, talking about these little things. But I know so many women who feel, and I'm sure this is partly why you wrote the book, that absolute tension between having these gifts that we want to bring to the world, but also wanting to be really present. I know this is a huge question. Most of it is in the book. But are there certain things that you would love my listeners to know about 
how have you shown up as this bright light, you know, in the world and, and achieve what you've achieved in the service that you have, but also remained present for yourself and for your five children? It goes back to what we've already been talking about. It's really prioritizing what is mine and what isn't. And from maybe a spiritual perspective, I have this understanding that we each have a purpose. I say a lot on my platform, it's to love and to be loved, to learn and to teach. And that can manifest in 7 billion different ways, you know, as many ways as there are people on the planet. I had to look at what I was carrying in my life, see truly what my heart desired, because a lot of things that we desire really aren't ours at all. Even our desires don't belong to us, you know, maybe to be thinner or to have more money or to have a certain car. Like those things don't interest me, but I was working toward them. So I had to even look at my dreams and say, which are mine? And when it came down to it, my family and the time that I spend with them, not the vacations we go on, none of that, like just playing a board game with them. It brings me the most joy. And then serving other people. I love being online, telling my story. I love connecting with women and mothers all over the world. And that's where I spend my time. That's where I spend my efforts, my money, all of that. It goes towards those dreams. Therefore, I have enough time because it's not really that many things that I'm doing. It's funny because people ask me, you know, you have five kids and you're doing all these things. How do you have time? And I said, I watch so much TV. So much TV that it's probably borderline unhealthy, but I was a TV kid raised in front of a TV. So I have lots and lots of time because I'm only doing the things that actually serve my goals and nothing that doesn't. You know, every night, the little ones, at least, um, the teenager doesn't always participate, but the little ones and my husband and I play card games together and we watch a little TV together. Or we read a book together. We don't really feel very busy. You've talked about healing this perfectionism. What about people-pleasing? Because I know that's something that so many mothers and women, actually, and humans, <laughs> everyone, wastes time on. And I do say it is a waste of time. Have you experienced that? And how have you eliminated that from your life? It doesn't sound like you're running yourself ragged trying to do things for other people. <laughs> I could say that as far as people-pleasing goes, that is completely eliminated from my life. And it took time. A lot of the things that I teach women or I offer to women, as far as my own experience, is a way to create shortcuts where I had to take the long road. There aren't many things in this world that I learned quickly. Like a lot of the lessons in motherhood, it took me 20 years to learn. But I want to tell this to young mothers or mothers of young children so that they can avoid all the mistakes. And as far as people pleasing, I just realized over time it didn't get me anywhere. It didn't make me more money. It didn't improve the relationships that I really cared about. It made my friendships fake. Even recently, over the past several years, I've had to let go of people who I called my best friends because I realized that the relationships were so energetically uneven so that I was giving so much and they weren't giving anything or that they were giving a lot and I, that I didn't even really want. It was a lot of ways that I saw that it just wasn't even. And with people-pleasing, it's almost like walking into a store and someone saying, you know, this box of cereal is $3 and you giving them 10. For what reason? It doesn't enhance your life. It doesn't make the cereal better. So I've learned to make sure that all of my relationships, whether they're business, personal, romantic, you know, mother, child, whatever, that they feel like both sides are investing and people pleasing doesn't have a part of that. So I do work to make people happy. 
or to offer ways for people to find happiness in their own lives. I do a lot for my friends. I'm a total yes person, but it's because every single person in my life would do the exact same for me. And it's not always tit for tat. Sometimes there's periods where I'm supporting a friend through something very hard for a big portion of time where she can't offer much back to me. But I know that when I need something that they would be there in the same way. I feel that that energy is there. But that took a long time to learn until Mm. recently, really. Do you find it hard to let go of those friendships? Now that I've learned the lesson, no, because I know that it's not good for anybody. It's also not good for the person that's involved to be in that kind of friendship. So I think that it's for the benefit. At first, it was hurtful. It was painful because I was questioning a lot about my own judgment. And I felt like maybe I just don't know how to find good relationships. Maybe I don't know how to attract the right people in my life. But I had to let go of that too, that idea. Mm, What else have you let go of in order to find this space and spaciousness? It was not so much about people pleasing, but the opinions of others and just the greater opinions of society of who I should be and how I should show up. For instance, I'm a meditation guide who is from New Jersey, which, you know, people don't know the States. New Jersey is kind of like this ragtag group of people that are considered to be rude and we talk too fast and we drive too fast. And like everything that's bad about humanity is like coming from New Jersey. So I have that little bit of attitude. And as a meditation guide in that world, you're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to talk very sweetly all the time and be very calm and always say the nice and right thing. And that just isn't me. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like people wouldn't relate to me and that I was doing it the wrong way. And as soon as I let go of that, of trying to be somebody different that I clearly could not be, I was failing all the time and said, this is my brand of meditation. You know, I'm loud. I talk fast. I laugh a lot. I smile a lot. I tell a lot of jokes. This is the way I teach. I lost some people, you know, but the clients, the audience, the relationships that I gained were so much more authentic and real and allowed my business to flourish, my personal practice to flourish. I let go of that idea that I should be a certain type of meditation coach. I let go of the idea that I should be a certain type of mother. You know, I don't bake. I hire people to bake for me. There's a lot of things I don't do. I'm not an outside mom. I say to my kids, like, let's play board games. And if you want someone to play outside with you, that's going to have to be dad or an older brother or sister, because I just don't like it. And I had to get honest with myself about who I was as a mother and also with my kids. Like, it's not that I just ignore them and say, I'm not playing outside with you. I tell them why. Like, that's just not something I enjoy. Let's do something else. Let's find something that we all like. So I let go of a lot of the shoulds and the supposed tos. And it freed me up to be real authentic and give space for me to do the things I do like to do. Mm, So powerful, isn't it? Because so often we can think that we have to do these things as mothers. But actually what I'm hearing is that you're modeling to your children how to be you and how they're going to be them. Exactly, yeah. My oldest daughter who growing up, let's just say I'm a very liberal person and like politically, socially and otherwise, and she's a very conservative person. And I... I had a lot of fear around that. I'm like, oh my, who is this person that I'm raising? She's so different than I am. And I think though, from me going after my dreams as a woman, having a career and sometimes not being able to make time for them. And, and, you know, she's expressed some hurt in that and said like, you're so different with the little ones than you were with us because, you know, you get to volunteer for Girl Scouts and whatever, and you couldn't do that with us. 
I'm trying to make up for it now. I tell her, you know, like you can come to me now. I'm trying to help you now. But I think in seeing that too, though, not always putting them first, putting myself first, that she is setting a path for herself. She's graduating from college this year. She is a scientist, which is like totally opposite of what I do. She already has her job secured. She wants this career. She's telling me she doesn't know if she wants to have children, maybe one, because she really wants this career. And I think that that is fabulous, that she grew up in a family of five children and this really big, strong family that was chaotic and fun and loving, but likes that, but also sees that she can have it a different way. And that's okay too. So I'm super proud of her. And she's opposite of me in almost every way. <laughs> and that's so great, isn't it? Because so often, and Dr. Shafali Tisbury talks about this a lot, that we just try and, what does she say? Don't paint the canvas of your life onto your children's. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love her. You know, she's a funny one too. I had dinner with her one night. We had a group that went out together and we were just all brought together. And she, to me, was someone who was so different than I was in parenting styles. She's so cool and calm and collected and lovely and, and graceful. And at this dinner, we sat next to each other and she is the most hilarious person was telling jokes that I didn't think that she would tell being this graceful, lovely woman. And we had the best time. And, and that was so refreshing to see her in that way. And it opened my eyes to how we can be so many different types of mothers and still be so amazing and inspiring. I'd studied for a year with her. So I got to know her online, not in person, mm-hmm. but I totally agree. She is hilarious. And do you yeah. know what, what helps me so much doing this podcast is that I speak to all these incredible women like yourself and, you know, other huge teachers and it just enables me to take people off this pedestal that we really are all just doing our best with what we've got. Some of us have learned some lessons like you have, you know, along the way and are sharing those, but really we're all just muddling through. And that gives me so much reassurance and hope. And there's not this one way and this perfect way. It's just about, can we be a little bit more mindful, I suppose, isn't it? Absolutely. Mindful and compassionate towards yourself. Like give yourself that compassion that you're just learning. Yeah. You're just muddling through. You know, my mother wasn't a perfect woman. And unfortunately it wasn't until after her death that I really got to see her as a whole person and not just my mother, which I think all kids do. Like you see your mother and that's the role that she's in. But as I got to know her as a woman and understand more about her years before she was a mother, I got to love her more. And I think that our relationship is continuing to heal even after her passing because I can see myself in her and in having compassion for her and getting to know her, I can extend that to myself. And I see how I'm so much like her. There's a beautiful exercise in the book around generational patterning. It's something I talk about a lot as well on my platform and the podcast. But the exercise is brilliant where you encourage women or anyone really to think about what their parents were like as humans, as people. And Mm. one of my biggest breakthroughs in my healing was when I started asking questions about what my mum's childhood was like, what her life was like, what my grandma's childhood was like. And I did it on both sides of my family. And gosh, the compassion, as you say, that just came pouring out. I thought, my word, she's actually a miracle, this woman, given all of that conditioning and trauma that was all down my female and male lines, that she raised us as well as she did. Did. And I wrote her a thank you letter recently. Yeah. And it was an incredible moment of healing and release for both of us. 
But I wouldn't have got there without, of course, thinking about her in context of her life. And that's in the book. We don't have time to go into it in detail now, unfortunately. But if people want to look at the book, it's in there around this beautiful exercise of looking more deeply and poignantly, I think, at actually our parents as humans and just knowing that we're all trying our best. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think it's really important for my listeners who are all mothers they're all on a path of you know wanting to be more conscious mindful loving towards themselves is there anything you would want them to know that we haven't talked about yet about a million things (laughs) (laughs) because motherhood is like I'm so honored to be a mother I feel so lucky to have this gift but I think that the biggest thing is that your healing should be such a priority because it truly does extend outward. And not even just, just your children. I think it extends backward. Like you say, doing these exercises to discover the childhood of your mother, that forgiveness, I think energetically, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, does extend backward and heals the generations of women before you. And then your children, but also because our children have such a ripple effect in the world, it's creating this imprint of love and compassion and self-regard that can really bring more peace to the world. And I think that if we all embrace motherhood and our femininity as the powerful things that they are, the whole world would change in an instant. I totally agree. You know, Dalai Lama said the world will be saved by the Western woman. Someone Mm -hmm. said that in private, I don't know if this is true. He later said, actually, the world will be saved by the Western mother. Mm. You know what, though? I think that all women the ones who've had children of their own, have adopted, who just act as mothers. I dedicate the book to my Aunt Kathy, who was not my aunt. She was a neighbor who adopted me, mm. couldn't have children of her own. We are nurturers in so many different ways. And if we just embrace that nurturing aspect of ourselves, oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I use that word mother with a mother heart. You know, we don't have to Mm -hmm. birth children to be mothers. And the last question I ask is the same for everyone, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers with that expanded definition in the whole world, what would it be and why? I guess it really piggybacks off the last answer that I just gave. And it's the knowing, the absolute knowing of the absolute truth that we are worthy and that our voices deserve to be heard and we deserve to be seen. And to know that, not just to understand it as some really affirmation. The stories of other women inspire me so much. It's how I thrive. It's how I've survived. So know that your story is important and you are important. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends, that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme. 
which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.